welcome to Christ and Kingdom. I'm your host, uh, Mike Tiemann from the Rock Community Church in Southern California. And I'm here with my good friend, Pastor Emilio Ramos from City View Church in Fresco, Texas, and founder of Red Grace Media. And we've been, over the past uh, couple months now, going through Sinclair Ferguson's book on the Christian life. And what a what a great book and a foundational book that should be a part of every, every Christian's library and a part of their uh, reading schedule on a, on a regular basis. Uh, it's definitely not a book that you just read one time and, and put on the shelf, but you should come back to it often and a great book on discipleship. But today we're picking it up kind of in the middle of a, a, a conversation that he's carrying on. And we're talking about the, the topic of faith in Christ and, and faith in Christ, um, in this chapter, it links, he says, this this topic is inseparable uh, from repentance, which he talked about in, in the last chapter, being born again, regenerated, right? That, that idea of regeneration and the idea of faith. And this topic of faith is so often misunderstood in, in the popular conversation, Christian conversation. We throw that word around faith all the time, and it, it kind of... It means everything and means nothing at the at the same time all over the place and so we're going to pick up in the in the chapter and um pastor emilio why don't you say hello and kind of talk about he's connecting the previous chapter of regeneration being born again with this topic of faith and why don't you just kind of introduce and and share how you want to want to go about tackling this absolutely well it's good to be with you again mike uh excited for this chapter of sinclair's book and I think you hit it right on the money that this is a book that you want people to come back to time and again. Uh, this is a great discipleship tool. Um, I'm doing this in the interest of just helping folks to grow in their uh, understanding of Christianity and the basics of Christendom. I, uh, as you know, Mike, I get um, I get quite a bit of feedback that a lot of the content that I do tends to be kind of... Uh, uh, maybe advanced for many people well, and, on the heady and side. Be technical, heady or whatever. Uh, that's just because, you know, I, I, t- I, I tend to like to do things I'm actually interested in and I'm studying and I'm involved in and stuff like that. So, uh, but this is an immensely practical book. And uh, the subject of faith in Christ, of course, is incredibly important because um, even as uh, Sinclair will go on to say, there's remarkable confusion regarding what exactly faith is and how does it work, really, within the economy of salvation? How do we understand faith? And, of course, just coming on the heels of regeneration, I think it's only appropriate to talk about the fact that, you know, as the principle of regeneration teaches us that God causes us to be born again, He gives us life, He gives us life where we were dead, right? That uh, regeneration is, strictly speaking, a monergistic act of salvation. God saves us. Uh, by first imparting life to us and then enabling us uh, to believe. And so faith, uh, naturally, in the logical order of salvation, faith follows regeneration. Uh, and therefore, it's, it's, it's absolutely appropriate for Sinclair Ferguson uh, to be talking about faith in this context right here. And so I'm, 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 I'm really um, excited about this chapter because... Uh, so many times throughout my pastorate, I've had the opportunity to teach people um, not just about faith in practice, as in the kind of faith that people exercise, but really theologically, what are the various aspects of saving faith? And that's a lot of what he talks about right here. So 
a, a really, really great chapter. This may not be one of the longest episodes that we do, but but certainly a very important one. Yeah, absolutely. And he, he starts off, and I think appropriate place uh, and he says we tend to think in, ch- in page 57 we tend to think largely on the basis of the order in which the words appear and this is to your comment that scripture teaches that repentance precedes faith in our ex- uh, experience on occasions that position is outlined something like this we never we will never come to trust christ until we feel sorry for our sins so repentance must always be first that is mistaken and unhelpful thinking mistaken because it confuses repentance with conviction of sin and unhelpful because it tends to promote the view that a fixed degree of repentance is necessary as a kind of qualification for faith. So Amelia with, with that, isn't there, you know, I mean, doesn't like conviction and all that, like, doesn't that need to be there? And what, what level does that need to be? That's kind of what he's he's hitting with that popular just way it's often expressed. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that's exactly right. I think Sinclair kind of knocks it out of the ballpark there because uh, faith is by itself a very simple thing, uh, right? It is, uh, as many people have said, you know, faith is the invisible hand that is given by God in order to receive the grace of God. And that is not something subject to some sort of degree of emotional response on behalf of the creature, on behalf of the person, the, re- the, the penitent sinner. Um, we don't have to manifest a degree of conviction of sin in order for us to obtain saving faith. Saving faith, in one sense, is not obtained at all. Saving faith is simply uh, given to us. It's a virtue, a Christian virtue, that God gave us by his spirit, and it's one of the benefits that we have uh, in and through Christ. And so there are no prerequisites for faith outside of God's own sovereign activity uh, in our life. That's the whole purpose of it. It's not like, well, once you have enough contrition over your sin, then and only then will you be able to exercise saving faith. And that's completely wrong. Saving faith is given to you, first, first and foremost, on the basis of a sovereign act of God, uh, much like creation, where God creates everything out of nothing. There was nothing there. You, had, you, you weren't, uh, <laughs> you know, to, to use an old category, maybe in a different way, right? You, you weren't even a tabula rasa. Uh, you, you, you weren't a blank slate. Right, there, there was nothing for God to work with. You were dead. I mean, it's almost like telling a doctor, "Well, here's a dead body. Here's a corpse. See what you can do with it." I mean, there's, yeah. there's not nothing a doctor can actually do with it. There's, there's not going to be a, uh, there's not going to be a blip on the uh, on the screen, right, of your lifeline. I mean, it's over. Uh, God has to actually give us life in the first place in order to produce the kind of effects that saving faith does, which is repentance, which is contrition and conviction, and that happens, in a sense, post-conversion more than anything, rather than pre-conversion. I mean, I think who of us would uh, deny that after conversion, when you really begin to uh, understand uh, what Scripture teaches, understand a little something about your own wickedness and sinfulness and wretchedness, that conviction and the conviction of your sin really becomes more acute after you're converted 
even than before you're converted. Uh, and so I think we need to always be careful that we put no conditions whatsoever on saving faith in terms of, well, you need to have this much contrition, you need to have this kind of sorrow, you need to have this kind of emotional experience. Uh, all of those things are auxiliary to saving faith. So I think that's good that Sinclair begins by kind of clarifying that. Yeah, what a great point. You know, we tend to, you know, it, it's it's subtle, but we are adding something to salvation um, when we're requiring like, okay, what degree is is necessary? And, and we'll know if regeneration is monergistic, being born again is a sovereign work of God right? That's from beginning to end, you know, and, and, uh, let's go to Ephesians two, eight, you know, you've been saved by grace through faith and this not of your yourself. It is a gift from God, not of works, lest anybody should boast. Do you think that in that context, that this, um, that's kind of that debate, what is this referring to? What's the antecedent, uh, to this? Do you think that's a good passage to go to, to kind of, uh, for scriptural support in this topic? Oh, yeah, certainly. I, I think it's right. And I think the antecedent to that, uh, to that, that Greek, uh, you know, relative pronoun, I think is right. I think it is, um, uh, you know, I think it's, I think it's pointing back to the whole phenomenon of saved by grace through faith. And basically, the whole phenomenon, the whole dynamic of salvation is a gift of God. None of it is of our own. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine the exegesis actually being, well, what Paul really meant here is that, well, you know, um, uh, you know, grace is God's gift, but faith is all of your doing. <laughs> I mean, no, of course not, right? I mean, it's all a gift. And then, of course, you have supporting passages uh, like Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, where obviously it's very clear that faith is a gift that has been granted to us uh, in Christ. And so, uh, absolutely, I mean, I think you, you see right there God giving us the gift of faith to believe, and that is God's doing, and everything is God's doing. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, even, you know, it's by God's doing that you are in Christ Jesus. So, uh, you know, I think it's it's important to know that really when it comes to monergism and synergism, it's only when we think about progressive sanctification, for example, that you have these synergistic elements, right? that the creature cooperates with the work of God and salvation. But up until that point, when you're thinking about election, regeneration, and justification, those are all actions God himself takes. So I think that's important to point out. Yeah, absolutely. So he, he moves on and he, he kind of lays the foundation of, of faith in Scripture. And this was an interesting um section as he he highlights. And he says, in fact, in, in middle of chapter 28, kind of the, the last paragraph there it says in fact in the old you said in the middle of chapter 28 sorry, page 58 um, okay in fact in the old testament faith is often expressed by the idea of trust and obey and then in mm -hmm. the middle of that paragraph he says faith looked forward then just as now it looked backwards to its object in christ and I loved how, you know, in this, this whole, you know, section here, he's, um, he's outlining, sorry, I got something ding in my ear. Um, he's yeah. outlining, uh, the old Testament idea of faith. And I, I appreciated how he put in the object of the faith, both old and new, right? Mm. The focal point of 
of it being Christ. Christ is is it. He's everything. So kind of why, why don't you just kind of give us a, a little idea, the biblical foundation for the idea of faith from from old to new. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned here, actually, even in terms of our hermeneutics, our approach to Scripture as a whole. And I'm glad he pointed this out, because it just reinforces what theologians have long pointed out, uh, that, of course, the nature of God's revelation is progressive. And progressive revelation expects that there is a development in the vocabulary, especially the technical vocabulary of Christian theology, of Christ, even when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, I mean, who in the world would have expected, let's say, for example, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, and then later on, chapter 15, verse 6, let's just say, for just to give one example, that Galatians would say in Galatians chapter 3, verse, uh, oh, I think it's verse 7 and 8 or something, that, uh, that the gospel, that the, the scriptures were preaching the gospel to Abraham, uh, in that very text, uh, and, and and when the Abrahamic covenant was given, I mean, who in the world would have ever concluded that Genesis one to three, uh, uh, Genesis twelve verses one through three, is the gospel? And yet, that's exactly what Paul says it is. And even if you go back to a more primal period of redemptive history, when you get to Genesis three fifteen, who in the world? would say, right, that that is the Proto-Evangelion, where right there at the very beginning, you have a promise of the seed of the woman becoming, in a sense, the mediator of the people of God, and and and, and sort of describing the redemptive work of Christ in, in uh, conquering and, uh, and, and triumphing over the serpent. Uh, that, that primitive, those primal pictures that are given in Scripture— are, are nothing less than the same organic thing as the full-fledged doctrine of salvation, let's say, in the book of Romans, or, you know, as we get to more technical language in the epistles and things like that. And so it should be no surprise to us to find that in the Old Testament, we may not find a, sort of a, a language of the justification of faith that you find in Romans, because that would be anachronistic. That would be kind of try, attempting to kind of read your Bible backwards, you know, in, in a sense, because that theology is coming closer and closer or more uh, clear and clear in a view. So the clarity of those doctrines are going to be what the New Testament really develops, and it's all rooted and grounded in the Old Testament, of course, uh, matter of fact, you know, uh, Mike, I'm preaching through Romans right now, and I just finished Romans chapter 4, and so uh, justification really kind of heavy on my heart and mind right now, and, uh, you know, when you think about how the Apostle Paul makes these arguments out of Romans, and he grounds some of these arguments of the technical forensic language of justification in, in something as simple as a psalm where David says, how blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And that, that, that psalm, uh, you know, when David uh, proclaims that, Psalm 32, um, Paul is saying David is essentially teaching the doctrine of justification. <laughs> and it's remarkable, but you, know, you may not find the language of justification there explicitly. You do, actually. It's here, it's there. But like Sinclair Ferguson says, you know, at the, open, at the top of that page, you mentioned page 58, you know, in the Bible, in terms of faith, that word is only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. 
and it mainly consists of trust and obey. And, uh, and that makes perfect sense, especially when you're thinking in terms of the Old Covenant and its theocratic character, what it meant to walk with Yahweh and to trust him in the midst of a theocratic life, a life in the theocracy, and to trust him in light of all of the enemies that they were surrounded by and all the different challenges that they faced, right? Both politically and economically and sociologically, uh, as is in keeping with a nation, let's say, a national identity of Israel, then those things start making a lot of sense about what it means to trust Yahweh and, uh, and, and all of that. So yeah, I think it's important that, it, that we n- take note of that, that there is a progressive nature to the revelation of God, and we shouldn't expect. But what does the New Testament do? Well, the New Testament is going to, uh, the New Testament is going to amplify, it's going to expound what is, and here's kind of a big term for people, what is the per se reading of Scripture? Per se just means original intent. What was the original intent? And the New Testament inspired writers, and he makes an example here out of Hebrews 11. I don't know if you were going to touch on that, but he he makes this example. He points out that Hebrews 11 is therefore expounding on the very faith that you find in the Old Testament. So I think that's the way that we need to look at our Bibles. Yeah, absolutely. And and I love that. I actually was teaching Galatians 3 this week, and I pointed out how Paul, and he does this all over the place, as you mentioned in Romans, to defend justification by faith alone. In, in Galatians, he goes to Leviticus, he goes to Deuteronomy, he goes to Habakkuk. And I'm like, yeah. how, how many of us would do the same, right? There's, there's almost this... Um, this idea that there's discontinuity to the story of God. Well, you know, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament idea. And, and well, he was doing something different in the Old Testament and doing something now new in the New Testament. And that's not at all the biblical narrative. I mean, it is, it is far, not even in the same galaxy to what the, the storyline of redemptive history is point, pointing out. And Paul belabors that point, and you brought up Hebrews. I mean, he, he says here in the bottom of page 58, it is interesting to notice how this is expressed, faith in Christ, right, is expressed in the teaching of Hebrews that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not yet seen. In fact, this perspective characteristic runs through the whole of Hebrews chapter 11. Noah trusted God, uh, God's word about events not yet seen, because in their their time, they're looking forward. These are these are promises of 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 fulfillment. They're living in the types and shadows looking forward. We're living in the 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 after reality looking looking back. Um, but the, the storyline of faith in God's promises, faith in God's word, faith in, in Christ is, is always the center focal point of, of the Bible of scriptures. So, you know, you, do you want to, you want to further comment on anything Mm -hmm. in Hebrews or, or I, I, yeah, I'd like to comment on that. Um, that will probably lead up to our next, um, section here, but, uh, you know, Gerhardus Voss has a very helpful note on Hebrews 11. You know, Gerhardus Voss wrote a little volume uh, on the epistle to the Hebrews. And uh, in that little volume, 
what Gahardisvoss says is, look, what you're seeing there in Hebrews 11 in the quote-unquote hall of faith. And matter of fact, now that I think about it, he really teaches this in Grace and Glory. These are, these are Gerhardus Voss's uh, sermons and really chapel sermons that he's done uh, at, um, that, he, that he did for Princeton long, long ago. Some of the most prolific uh, sermons you'll ever read in your life. Uh, but he talks about that in Hebrews 11, what you're looking at there is not so much the measure of the faith of these people, like, oh man, you know, Noah, as you mentioned, and uh, everyone that's mentioned there, whether it's Sarah, whether it's Abraham, you know, it's not like, oh wow, look, they had such tremendous measurements of faith, as if we're talking there about the quantity yeah. of their faith. But he distinguished that what you're looking at there is the nature of saving faith. And that saving faith enabled them to look beyond themselves, to look beyond their own context, to look beyond the the physical things around them and to penetrate into the eternal realm and to be able to see uh, eschatologically, as it were. And and I just mentioned that, uh, Mike, because today in the church, and certainly in the world, but even in the church, sadly, you know, you have a lot of, of, of Christians that have elevated faith to unhealthy degrees where they've almost deified faith. They, they give faith personification, where faith does everything. They speak of the power of faith. They speak of, you know, um, uh, you know, you know that, that this person, uh, you know, has faith and that, that that automatically means that this person has salvation. And, and sometimes, you know, if we're not careful, Christians can sort of gobble and, and, and sort of confuse, and what ends up happening is that you, you tangle up the categories of faith, where you confuse exercising faith versus, let's say, the faith that is given to you for justification or saving faith. And then you begin to confuse saving faith with your experience of faith when those things are two different things. And, and sadly, a lot of Christians, they have a very superficial understanding of faith. For some people, uh, you know, faith is sort of a blind kind of phenomenon, right? Faith is more aligned along the lines of what we would call fideism, right? Just sort of a blind belief and uh, kind of like, well... You don't know something to be certainly true, and they would say, well, that's why you have faith, <laughs> as if faith is some ignorant sort of you know, placeholder for Christian knowledge, but it's not. You know, In Scripture, it's very clear that faith is actually what? It's, it's, a, it's a conviction based on certainty. It is not leaping out into the dark, okay? And, uh, and so, I don't know, I just think it's important to get the categories of faith right, lest, lest we sort of uh, add to the confusion that so many people have today about the nature of saving faith. You know, the quantity of your faith, let's say the measure of your faith, the faith that you exercise as a Christian in sanctification is not to be identified with the faith that is given to you for justification. Hmm. I think that's an important distinction. Yeah, they take that idea from Genesis or Galatians three, the Abraham, the man of faith, and now we are recreating all these men of faith that have different, you know, the haves and the haves nots. You know, unless you ascend uh, ascend to some certain level, um, well, you 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 don't get your miracles, 
right? You don't get, mm. you know, your your type of things. And, and we create this, not we, but the church as a whole kind yeah. of creates this culture of... A two-tier, a two-tier yeah. Christianity. Yeah. yeah. Those who those who really really have faith, and those of us that oh well, we just have saving faith. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're not we're not we're not good enough in that. And so you know, in that faith is not detached from reason and 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 intellect and, and knowledge. And that's where he goes he goes next, and he talks about what is faith. And his his first point is knowledge, and he says this in page fifty nine: faith is dependent on what we can know about God. And that idea of knowledge kind of has a, a, a two-sided thing. There's a there's a, a basis of knowledge. There's certain factual information, uh, and and the deeper idea of knowledge is is kind of to know. There's a relational aspect, you know, to it. And so Emilio, as as he talks here, um, how much knowledge is necessary? Like, is there a, a certain level of of theological truths that one needs to um, know, understand? Um, you know, can a person be saved without a solid understanding of the Trinity, or, or, or what? What is that metrics there? Yeah, I I think ultimately, you know, um, Paul Paul kind of answers this question in Romans chapter ten. Um, he he kind of breaks it down to uh, what is both confessed with the mouth and believed on in the heart. And he obviously does this after a long train of argumentation. But for the Apostle Paul, what, what he would say is that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, which is, notice that, that's an identity of Jesus as uh, as as Lord and 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 there therefore an acknowledgement of His deity, um, that He is essentially Yahweh, and if you believe that He is Lord, and you believe in your heart, which is interesting, we go from the mouth to the heart, because God, uh, and I think in doing this so carefully, distinguished between uh, mere professions of faith versus an actual possession of faith with the heart being involved, there's that real internal, subjective, existential experience that we have to have, otherwise known as an encounter with a living God, a personal relationship with God. And so uh, with your heart, what you believe, uh, that, and then that idea there, and here I'm talking about Romans chapter 10, verse 8 and following, but uh, when he says, you know, you believe that, God raised him from the dead, right? You will be saved. What a startling claim. And so here, uh, the Apostle Paul, I think, would lead us in the direction to say, yes, we can't just have this sort of empty-headed profession. We can't just get people to repeat after us and say some magical words, right? I actually shared this in a sermon that very early on in my uh, Christian life, uh, I was told about a sinner's prayer. You hear about that, Mike? Yeah. <laughs> Have I heard about that? Yep, I did. I got stories. Right? And if you just get people to repeat after me and say these words and say the sinner's prayer, then voila. I mean, it's like Shazam. You're, 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 you're saved, right? And so I thought, okay, well, I'll get as many people as I know and love and care about uh, to repeat these words. And man, I'll try every, every angle I can to get these people to utter those words, you know? <laughs> And, uh, of course, that is not something that we are commissioned to do in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture 
are we commanded to go around trying to get people to say the magical formula, right? But therefore, it requires that there is a certain amount of knowledge. And if you notice, Mike, in this book, Sinclair Ferguson is going to walk us down the path of what is known as the three aspects of saving faith. He deals with knowledge, or let's use the technical terms, right? There's notitia, a census, fiducia, Mm -hmm. right? And notitia is the knowledge aspect of faith. Faith has to be informed by the necessary components of of, of the gospel. So you have, you have to have some non-negotiable basic elements in your knowledge as an individual, as the creature, as the recipient of the message of salvation. You must know the basic fundamentals of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ died, as is implied even here, talk, talking about his resurrection, you don't resurrect somebody that didn't die, and so therefore it assumes your knowledge of the death of Jesus as the prerequisite for your salvation, and then you believe in in, in God who raised him from the dead, so that the resurrection is not just kind of tacked on at the end, just for you know, just for uh, just as some sort of supplement, or you know, just as a freebie, <laughs> you know, but that the resurrection is part and parcel and essential to the message of salvation. But when a person knows these fundamental basics, right, they may be they may be radically confused as to the essential nature of the Godhead. They may be radically confused as to the precise nature of the hypostatic union. They may be radically confused about the precise nature of inspiration, let's say, how that works exactly, right? But there is some there is some bare fundamental components that they have to know, and I think these the, the knowledge of these things is what gives them uh, the capacity to to uh, to make this confession with an informed mind. God is certainly not in the business of bypassing the intellect of the creature, okay, and just saving people in some osmosis way or some sort of intuitionist fashion or some sort of subjectivistic mysticism. Absolutely not. So this is um, not, not making Christianity a rationalistic faith, but there certainly is reason and logic and uh, propositional truth that uh, a Christian has to, a person uh, believes and knows as they exercise saving faith. So that's really important. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, so, and you, you brought it up. We have uh, ascent. Um, while, while it is important to see intimate fellowship with God is a primary aspect, faith also involves to recognizing um, certain things as true and giving mental assent to them. Believing in Christ means assenting to the truth that Christ uh uh, as well about Christ, as well as coming to, to know him, there are things we must now the Lordship, right. As, as you said, and then he, he moves on to trust in Christ. And I, I love this aspect. This is the heart he says of faith, right. Trusting in Christ. And this is the point that makes, you know, and teaching through Galatians makes the Judaizers such, um, enemies of Paul. Because he's like, wait, 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 you're adding law to Christ, right? That, yeah. that is such a, a horrific thing to do because you're saying, in a sense, Christ is not enough. Christ is not sufficient. You need to add something to, to Christ. 
And his mm. whole argument is, no, the heart of this is just simple trust. And it's the scandal of it. It's, it's so sim- profoundly simple. It goes against, you know, our thinking, I, uh, you know, of just, no, it, it is simple mm. trusting in Christ as enough. Mm. And that's it. There's nothing to be added to it. Our, our, our flesh wants to add things to it. Um, religion yeah. wants to add things to it, but the gospel is so profoundly simple yet at the same time, yeah. we're going to spend a lifetime and an eternity, you know, understanding and, and plumbing its depths and riches. Right. You have anything you want to, you, you kind of summarized, I think, no. ascent and, and trust in Christ so, so well. Um, now going, moving on, we, we kind of talked a few minutes ago, joking about, you know, uh, the man of faith and, and faith is something measurable. And he goes on to say, well, but there are degrees of faith. Uh, page mm-hmm. 62, he talks about faith is liable to greater and lesser degrees. The New Testament speaks of little faith, great faith weak and strong in faith, uh, growing in faith, uh, sincere in faith, sound in faith, men who are full of faith, uh, and those who enjoy full assurance of faith, all of, uh, of all faith. And, and, and he just kind of strings together and he says, the object of faith does not change. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but our love for him, our knowledge of his goodness, our acquaintance with his ways, our experience of his power may grow in proportion to that growth comes a strengthening of faith. So did he just, is this just con- now contradicting and calling us, you know, calling us liars for what, what we just said a few minutes ago? Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think what Sinclair has done is he's, he's rightly parsed what faith is. In, in talking about the three aspects of saving faith, when you think about the knowledge that's necessary, the assent, right, a census that you have to agree with the facts, you know, of the gospel, uh, one thing to know them, it's another thing to agree with them. And then the last one that he mentioned was trust in Christ, which is fiducia. Uh, that is where we look completely away from ourselves and trust in. And you know what's remarkable, uh, 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 Mike, is that each aspect of saving faith actually has grammatical constructions in the Greek text where you have the word faith or the verb faith used in a certain Greek construction to illustrate what aspect of faith are we talking about when a person is agreeing to the facts of the gospel. You must believe that, for example. It'll use language like that. And then you must believe in in order to have fiducia, trust, right? And, and, and those, those things right there are not things that people do step by step, right? That is part of the impartation of saving faith. But when you get to, you know, when you get to, and we would say, you know, saving faith, uh, uh, knowledge, uh, assent, and trust, these things are all, in a sense, inseparable, simultaneous they're indistinguishable in terms of time, but they are inseparable, right? In terms of their, in, in terms of the overall dynamic of justification and believing on the gospel, believing in the gospel. But this last category that that you just read, talking about deg- uh, different kinds of faith, 
degrees of faith, and then he gets into kinds of faith, right? This is very important as well, because uh, you you can see uh, exactly what you read. I, I want to just reiterate that again. He says, the object of faith does not change. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But our love for him, our knowledge of his goodness, our acquaintance with his ways, our experience of his power may grow, in, and in proportion to that growth comes a strengthening of faith. And I think that's so incredibly good uh, that we uh, that we recognize that to the degree, right, that we continually as Christians trust upon Christ, trust upon his works, and, and believe in his promises, to that degree we can find that our faith will be strengthened alongside of that. And, and to the degree that we doubt, to the degree that we waver, right, to the degree that we falter in trusting Christ for all of these things, we can expect that our faith may weaken at times and that we may find ourselves in a spiritual decline of sorts. And so it's to be taken very serious, right? I mean, the book of Hebrews talks about drifting, and all the way to the point where we need to be warned about apostasy. And so we have to be, uh, we have to be careful to distinguish between the fact that now we're talking about faith within the confines of progressive sanctification. Yep. We're no longer talking about faith what is necessary for justification, but within the confines of our sanctification, progressive sanctification, right? We can experience on a practical level as Christians faith that goes up and faith that goes down, faith that is strengthened and faith that is weakened, weakened ultimately by sin and unbelief, and strengthened ultimately by faith and the means of grace, which we, we get in the local church by way of word and sacrament, by the preaching proclamation of the Word of God, and of course by our own personal devotion to the Word of God, and then also in the sacraments of the church, which is the Lord's Supper and baptism. And then by extension from those things comes really sort of a secondary means of grace, because those things imply fellowship, worship, Bible reading, those kinds of things. And so very, very important to distinguish between uh, what's required for us in justification and what happens to us in sanctification. So I think that's a really good distinction that needs to be made. Yeah, excellent. I'm so glad you put those in those appropriate categories, you know, because I think yeah. that's where we get confused is as we are now in the faith, <clears throat> there should be an evident upward trajectory of growth. Uh, in in the Christians that that we are now growing, you know, what did you call it? Progressive sanctification, right? Mm-hmm. There's that idea of like, no, we're we're moving along in this Christian life, and the struggles of week one of Christianity are different than the struggles of, you know, week ten thousand whatever, you know, that that mm-hmm. we we grow, um, and mm-hmm. and that is necessary and, and required, you know, mm-hmm. in and of us, not to earn salvation but the fact that we are are saved and so what a what a great great topic um that he brings up here you know in our day and age so so confused so abused in many many cases um but so precious to the gospel uh Mm. so simple um in all those and i just kind of wanted to close i love going back to page 61 he's talking about trusting christ And he says, such trust is always a costly thing. 
because it involves us in surrendering our lives to Christ. Um, you know, that's, that's it. This, this Christianity isn't just fire insurance. It is, it is a complete life surrendered, uh, in, in the temporal here and now and in the eternal, um, that we Mm. just simply trust in Christ. And now that, that requires everything from us. Um, Mm. Again, to clarify, not to earn salvation, but because we are saved, this this trust, it it now dictates every aspect of our life, our our bank account, our thinking, everything. Um, there's nothing within our life that avoids this category, um, you know, for us. So, anything else you you want to add to the conversation? Before? I yeah, you know, um, Mike, let me just add the last thing, which really hopefully won't be a whole lot of me adding anything. But I do want to read what Sinclair says at the very end of page 63, just to close out that, that chapter. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, next time we're, we're going to be talking about repentance, and that's going to be so appropriate as well and, and, and on the heels of this. But I, I thought because we are Reformed, because we are Calvinist, because we have a high view of the sovereignty of God, election and predestination, and monergism, but, but Sinclair, who, who shares all of those reform uh, convictions, of course, uh, he has a remarkable word of caution at the end of this chapter, where he says at the very bottom there of 63, he says, you know, Paul later indicates the same letter uh, in, in Ephesians, that faith is from God the Father and the Lord Jesus. Now, now he makes a qualification here that's very important for us all. He says, not that God believes for us. That would lead us to a, 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 a crescent form of fatalism, mm. which basically some, some, some sort of, uh, you know, some, some kind of fatalistic idea, right? Where we do nothing, right? Where it's like, okay, well, if God is this sovereign, then even faith is from him in a sense. You, we could almost make the mistake that we are not even exercising our own faith. And that would be a mistake, Sinclair says. And he says, we believe in Christ, and God does not and cannot believe for us. That's a very, very important distinction there. Very important for all of us in the Reformed faith. He says, but the faith with which we believe and trust is ours only because he has created it within our hearts when we find ourselves saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, then we have reached another landmark in the outworking of God's plan of salvation. And I think that that is so remarkable because, Mike, this is what separates us from liberalism. This is what separates us from stoicism. Uh, this is what separates us from worldly philosophy. This is what saves us from uh, false religion and their view of determinism and things like that. Uh, where, no, 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 as much as we believe that faith is a gift, God, so as to avoid any notion of pantheism, God is not the one exercising or living out our faith within us, right? That is something that is in the creature's uh, newly enabled nature, his new nature, to exercise that faith in God, and, uh, and in that way, I think for all of us, we should be uh, encouraged that our faith is 
far from fatalism, far from something like deism, where God is no longer involved. Uh, God is intimately involved with us, and there is what the Puritans would call a divine intercourse between the creature and the creator, where we believe upon him, and he, in a sense, shows himself to be merciful and kind to us, even as we live our life of faith before him and for his glory. So I think that's an important distinction that should be made. So I think that that's the last thing I'll say, because I, I didn't want to finish this this uh, episode without uh, quoting Sinclair Ferguson there. Uh, I, I think it's a brilliant stroke of of the book. So yeah, amen to that. What a great, what a great point that is. So with that, Emilio, it's always, always a pleasure uh, to, to talk theology, to talk about our God uh, with you. And thanks for listening to this episode of Christ and Kingdom. Please don't forget to like and share uh, this episode. And please remember to check out Red Grace Media Live on Wednesday nights uh, with Pastor Emilio goes live there. And you can see Pastor Actually, Sunday nights. Su- well, Sunday nights. Actually, Sunday. Sunday yeah, nights. Sunday. Sundays at 7 is kind of our official time. Uh, to to launch. Wonderful. And you can check out past episodes at redgracemedia.com. So with that, God bless you guys. May the Lord reign in your life. 